Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all be doing to live a, to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. This is episode 2250 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday the 13th. Yeah, got to throw a little pop culture fun in there. If you're an 80s kid like I was, man, you remember Friday the 13th when it was like, it was, you know, like now there's been like 800,000 of them or something, Jason versus the Loch Ness Monster or something is what they'll come up next. I don't know. But, I mean, you remember the original Friday the 13th. I remember, guys, this has nothing to do with the show, just some fun on a Friday. I remember when I was a little kid. I mean, I had to be sub-10. I don't know how old exactly I was, but it was the first time I saw this movie. And it came on like, you know, regular TV, so it had some editing done to it and all. But it was like on one of those channels that was on the UHF dial. Remember the UHF dial? So you had like your three networks plus PBS, and then you could go to the UHF dial and get like, I guess it was the precursor to Paramount 21 and uh, Fox, I guess, you know. But there were a couple other channels you could pick up there if you tilted the rabbit ears just right and moved the tinfoil over and Friday the 13th came on. We all knew it was coming on. And all of my friends and I watched it. I think I had like three friends over, had like a slumber party. We watched Friday the 13th. Like all the other kids that we hung out with, they all watched it too. And that's all we could talk about, man. Jason was going to get you. And there were times like we had these woods we used to play in this dark swamp in Florida. And every once in a while you'd be in those woods and you're, you're a little kid. And your little kid head starts hearing that music. And you start moving just a little faster, just a little faster, just a little faster. Ah, to be young again. I, I, I look at those movies now, I think they're the stupidest movies. They're the most preposterous, ridiculous movies. But, you know, when you're a kid, 1980, they were pretty cutting edge and they were pretty terrifying. Of course, what is Friday the 13th really all about? We learned in our history segments that it was really all about the deceit and turning against the Knights Templar. Uh, so that's kind of a thing to think about today and not really so much about black cats. Anyway, what do we got going on today? It is expert council Q&A for Friday the 13th, 2018. And we have, uh, with GPU prices down, is now a good time to invest in mining equipment. For Ben Fitz at Crypto Gulch. We have all about poison ivy sensitivity from Old Doc Bones. We have losing weight when your exercise is impeded by a, a significant injury. So you can't really exercise the way that you feel that you should from Gary Collins. We have making a knife with a blank versus forging your own steel for a knife and how that works out with Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives. We have making the decision between if you homeschooled your kid, you, you're coming up on those graduation ages, ready to send them off to to slay dragons and do great things. Well, do you do the homeschool diploma thing, or is it better to get them a GED or like the little girl in the Taco Bell commercial? Can we have both? Why can't we have both, right? We have ideas for filling and easy breakfasts from Chef Keith Snow. And then I'm going to take, I usually stay off politics here, but um, I, I'm, I'm sick of something. And it's probably not you, what you would think. Of course, we had. Uh, uh, this FBI agent testifying before Congress yesterday that 
sent all these text messages about stopping Trump and this can't happen and whatever. That, that's not my problem that I have right now, though. I mean, that is what it is. We see that. We know what that is. My problem is right-wing media and how they're approaching this. And it's not that they're saying, hey, this is wrong. That part I actually agree with, mostly. Um, my bigger problem is this. Well, except the rank-and-file FBI guys. Those guys are great. They're the salt of the earth. Every single one of these talking heads, whenever they bring this up, and they talk about the deep state, and they talk about the behavior of Peter Strzok, of uh, this girl Lisa Page, about the, honestly, I think, completely screwed-up behavior of people like James Comey, they always preface it, but, oh, man, the FBI, man, these guys are just awesome. They're, oh, you can't blame them for... I'll tell you why I think that is completely upside down on its face when we get to my segment today. Before we do that, let me remind you, you can help support this show in a really, really easy way. And that is to uh, go on to the Survival Podcast website at thesurvivalpodcast.com. When you get there, click on Members and sign up to become a member of the MSB. And when you sign up, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get an email from me, and you're going to have set up this login, and you're going to be able to go log into a private area. It's not just, hey, I like Jack, so here's some money. You get this membership, you log into your private area, and you'll find video content that you can't get anywhere else that I've put in there. You'll find a whole bunch of ebooks. Some of them are paid ebooks that you, you know, you'd spend more money than you just did to become a member just to get the ebooks. And some of them are actually public domain stuff that I've found over the years and I've put there that, you know, you wouldn't even know that they were there without it. Uh, and they're, they're quite useful. You'll also get discounts and this is where you get your money back. So there's over 70 companies that I have worked out discounts with. And these are not phony baloney discounts like you get with AAA where you go in and you say, you know, get a hotel room and then they, you say, they say, okay, well, it's this much. And you're like, well, I'm AAA. Do you guys do a discount for that? And like, I already gave you a better rate than that. And these are actual real discounts exclusive to us. And you use those discounts on stuff you're probably going to buy anyway over the year. You get your money back and you support the show. So to me, when I put this together, I wanted to make it a win-win-win scenario. The people doing the discounting, they get business they wouldn't have. That's called incremental revenue. It is the lifeblood of a business. You get to do business with companies I personally vetted, and I know that it's safe to do business with them, and I know they're going to take care of you, and you get a discount from them, and you get to support the show, and I get to do the show and do what I love and help you guys out. That's exactly how that works. So if you're not a member yet, consider becoming one today. With that, let's go ahead and dive into it today. First up, uh, you know, the crypto market's been crazy lately. Um, of course, the naysayers, and we're always the naysayers, like, it's the, God, I told you it was a disaster. And, and Bitcoin's over 6000 bucks, and, you know, they were screaming that it was a scam and it wouldn't work and you were going to lose all your money when it was a dollar. I mean, really let that sink in. So crypto is here to stay. It's not going to be a, a gentle road. It's going to be an up and down and rattling road. But with the, the cost of crypto coming down and with interest in mining dropping some due to that, GPUs are kind of on sale right now. Actually, they're selling for what they always should have sold for because demand has dropped. So with that in mind, some people that are mining crypto are thinking, is this a good time to invest in mining gear? And I got a question like that for Ben Fitz of Crypto Gulch. Ben, what do you think is now a good time to be investing in mining gear? Hey, Jack and Survival Podcast listeners. This is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch. And today we have a question on cryptocurrency, which comes from Dan. 
and he wants to know if it's a good time to buy crypto mining hardware. He says with Crypto's Falls, he's seeing mining hardware look more affordable now. The parts are generally in stock, and in some cases, they're 25% cheaper than they were six months ago. He's also guessing a lot of people are losing interest, selling equipment, or both. And he thinks it might be a decent time to build out more rigs while there's ample and cheaper supply. What do I think? Well, Dan, thanks. I really appreciate getting a question about crypto mining because that's my business. At Crypto Gulch, we mine for people. Um, we're a co-location facility where people put their rigs in and we basically uh, operate the rigs for them, um, much like web hosting. And so I, I'm always interested in questions about mining. Now, there's two things you're seeing right now. One is you're seeing the decline in the price of cryptocurrency in general. That's certainly affecting the interest of people in mining. But also you're seeing a technology shift. And with the technology shift and the decline in crypto prices, the rewards from mining have gone down greatly. And for a lot of people, it's scary. So let me give you a little background. Obviously, if the crypto prices are going down and you have to sell to pay bills like your electricity or a credit card bill because you bought your miner on credit card, then it's going to be, you know, harder for you to make a profit because you've got to sell your crypto to pay your bills. And so there are some people in that situation that they have to sell their equipment just because they can't keep up with the bills anymore. Um, the technology shift also affects cryptocurrency because what it's doing is the technology for mining is changing and it means that right now GPUs are not getting as much reward as they were even a few months ago. And technology has come out for both Ethereum and Zcash, which essentially makes GPUs less profitable than they used to be for those coins specifically, and they were two of the primary coins that people would mine. So it has affected people as well, and some people are concerned about the technology change, especially if they're new miners and they've never been through this before. They don't know what to expect, and they think the sky is falling, and you know they're looking at their profitability today, especially if they've got credit card bills and stuff. You know, they're looking at their profitability and they're panicking. So there are some good opportunities to buy. You can buy used or you can buy new. Um, there, I haven't seen people offering really good deals on used equipment. It seems like they're still trying to cling to the idea that they can sell used equipment for really high prices. So I definitely would not buy used equipment unless it was a really good deal. You've got to look at warranties and things like that. You've got to look at the fact that they probably ran their equipment at high temperatures and you don't know how long it's going to be before the fan dies or something on the GPU, even if it works, you know. Um, so, so be careful buying used equipment. It's best if you can buy used equipment that has a warranty that's transferable and, um, only way to know is to check out the manufacturers and see if their warranties are, are transferable or not. Um, now, whether or not it's a good idea to, to mine with GPUs or not, 
I can give you my opinion. And this is my opinion. I'm a miner. I've been around the block. Um, GPUs will always have a place in mining. Right now, they're in a down cycle, but they will have up cycles. It's the way things have always been since the beginning of cryptocurrency mining. What do I mean? There's a typical lifestyle in cryptocurrency mining. When a coin is developed, temporarily it is CPU mineable. There are a few coins that are more CPU mineable than others, like the Monero-based coins. They are... um there's less of a benefit to running a GPU to mine than a CPU. The CPUs are still really effective in comparison. But with coins like Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, Zcash, the GPU is so much more effective than CPUs that as soon as some software becomes available for this, for the GPUs, then people will um, start mining with GPUs. And that's always the case at the beginning of a coin. Almost all mining is done by GPUs. Only after a coin has been around for a while does it make sense for companies to actually invest millions of dollars and months of time to try to develop an ASIC. An ASIC is a specialized computer chip that is designed to do one thing and one thing only. It's designed to mine one specific algorithm of coins and by algorithm, I mean the cryptocurrency algorithm, the cryptography algorithm. Um, each coin chooses a specific algorithm. For Bitcoin, it was SHA-256. So if you had an ASIC that did SHA-256 Bitcoin mining, it could mine Bitcoin, and it could mine other coins that use that same algorithm, like Bitcoin Cash. Litecoin is on the script algorithm, and if you bought an ASIC miner that does script... It can do Litecoin, and it can do those coins that are related to script mining. So what happened is Bitcoin came out, and up until like 2014, you mined it on GPUs. The end, the middle of 2013 is when companies started announcing ASICs for Bitcoin, and in January, they started shipping. January 2014 is when they started shipping. So that was like five years of time that you had four and a half, five years of time with Bitcoin before ASICs ever came about that people mostly mined it with CPU and GPU. Um, so then what happened was everybody had to look for something else if you had GPUs or you had to turn them off. And a lot of people turned towards Litecoin, and Litecoin became the main new coin that people mined with their GPUs. For a while, it probably wasn't very profitable um, as a GPU miner because the Litecoin price was so low, you know. And if everybody starts suddenly mining Litecoin with GPUs, it's it's not very profitable. Um, eventually, Litecoin became more profitable and more prominent, and people developed ASICs for it. Well, by that time, you had Ethereum, and so the GPU miners were able to switch to mine Ethereum. Now, only until about 20, end of 2016, most everybody bought AMD GPUs. People didn't even buy NVIDIA. So uh, suddenly, the software people that were developing the mining software started to target NVIDIA more. You had new coin come out like Zcash, and um, so NVIDIA became more prominent suddenly. And the software manufacturers figured out how to tweak the NVIDIA software better and better. And, and NVIDIA 
almost took over from AMD. Um, AMD cards were less commonly used for mining after the end of 2016. And, and that's normal. And what happened was we had a period of a couple of years that we were able to mine Ethereum and then eventually Zcash very profitably. But what happened was both Ethereum and Zcash pro- proved their successfulness. They were projects that had developers that actually were able to implement the ideas. And eventually what happened was they became so profitable that it was worth companies to develop ASICs. So recently, we have ASICs for both Ethereum and Zcash hitting the market, and so miners are getting less of a reward. So your question, or the question I have for you, Dan, is do you think that GPUs are going to make a comeback or not? Do you think that everything is going to go ASIC? Now, here's the other thing, is that ASICs only do one thing and one thing well. Monero is a coin based on kryptonite, and they actually had a problem with ASICs. And when the companies finally announced that they were selling ASICs, what happened was the Monero um, community had a backlash, and they decided to fork, and they changed Monero's algorithm from kryptonite to kryptonite v7. Slightly different kryptonite formula, enough of a change in the cryptography to break the ASIC computers that were used to mine Monero, and their hash rate or the difficulty went down like 81% or something like that. I think it was the hash rate that went down 81%. So that's a sign that that many people were using ASICs in secret mining Monero, and it was worthwhile for them to make that change. Now, Ethereum and Zcash, neither one of them plans to make a change. Both of them plan to just go ASIC. But some of the other coins that are based on those algorithms will make changes to support the GPU miners. The GPU miners are a huge community. And if you're a coin that's struggling, it's a great way for you to tap into a new market and to get a lot of awareness for your project and hopefully get your prices to go up if you target GPU miners. So for that reason, I definitely don't think GPU mining is going to go away. Um, I also think if you look at past history, there's going to be new coins and new algorithms which come out which are going to make GPU mining uh, more affordable. And it takes a company probably at least a year or year and a half to develop an ASIC because it might only take them, let's say, six months to develop the chips and develop the hardware, but they're not going to develop an ASIC and spend millions of dollars on a brand new coin that just launched today and doesn't have a proven team, doesn't have a proven track record, doesn't have any value, doesn't have any exchanges where you can buy and sell it. You know, they need to see all of those things come into place before they can invest the millions of dollars into an ASIC and the six months or nine months time it's going to take them to develop an ASIC. So in my opinion, we're going to see some new coins and some new projects um, that are going to come out. One of them right now that a lot of people are looking at is called Ravencoin. It's on X16R algorithm. And there's some people that say it's going to be ASIC resistant. There's other people saying that X16 isn't all it's meant to be. But at least temporarily, it's ASIC resistant. Um, there's also a new algorithm coming out called Prog, P-O-W, like Prog, like programming 
Prog, P-O-W. And that is supposed to be a very ASIC-resistant algorithm that is designed to use the GPU more effectively so that it really uses all the resources of a GPU, makes it a lot harder for a company to be able to create an ASIC that is better than a GPU. So there are companies and there are projects that are going to be out there that I think are going to continue to target the GPU community. That's just my personal opinion. You have to decide your own opinion. And I would suggest that you look at history and look at the fact that coins always start out as GPU and they always go ASIC eventually. It's worthwhile for companies to make ASICs. But there's always a time where GPUs are effective. Right now we're in the time where GPUs are not as effective. And what that means is that there is an opportunity right now to buy GPUs affordably and to build mining rigs if you believe that GPUs are going to make a comeback. If you don't think that GPUs are going to make a comeback, then you certainly don't want to be investing money into GPU uh, mining. There are other things that you could invest in for mining like ASICs. So, Thank you for the question. It's been a really long answer. Um, I hope you guys bear with me. This is a topic I'm, I'm really passionate about and knowledgeable about because it affects my business and it affects all of my customers. And I do believe that right now we're seeing the down cycle, but we will get an up cycle again. The question is when. Thank you all. I hope you're having a great day. Thank you, Jack, for this opportunity. Bye-bye. All right, next up, I have Doc Bones with a question on uh, poison ivy. Specifically, is there any way to reduce your sensitivity to poison ivy? Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a 1,000 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, and designer of medical kits for everything from family camping trips to medical missions overseas. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Chris in Indiana, who writes, I live in northeast Indiana, home to eastern poison ivy. Oh, boy. I cut my own firewood and often get exposed when cutting and moving the wood. I try my best to limit exposure and wash thoroughly after I've been outside. Is there a safe and effective method to desensitize myself to the erushiol? Thank you, Chris in Indiana. Chris, whether you're outdoors due to a major disaster or just chopping wood, it's possible you're going to run afoul of poisonous plants. In the United States, you can expect to find poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, and others. 350,000 cases of poison ivy alone are recorded in the United States every year. The typical trifoliate, three-leaf appearance of poison ivy and other poisonous plants like poison oak has led to the saying, leaves of three... Let it be. Now, the factor that makes poison ivy a hazard is, as Chris says, the compound urushiol. Urushiol is an oily resin that can be found on just about every part of the plant, including vines, leaves, and roots. The chemical irritant sticks to the skin on contact and causes symptoms in 85% of those exposed. 85% of humans, that is. Deer and birds and everything else seem to be able to function just fine in its presence. As poison ivy rash is essentially an allergic reaction, it's not in and of itself contagious, nor is it likely, if you have a normal immune system, that you'll be desensitized to it. 
So that's a dilemma, Chris. Also, most don't realize that they were exposed during their time outdoors, and they wait to wash it off after about 30 minutes. You already are at the point where you might just get some kind of reaction. Exposure may also occur indirectly, by the way, by touching a kid or the fur of a pet that's been outside. Once you've determined that there has been exposure to poison ivy, which in your case may be pretty much all the time, it's important to wash the exposed area and clothing with soap and water as quickly as possible, but erushiol is not easy to remove, so use soaps that are effective against resins or oil, such as Fels Nafta, that's F-E-L-S hyphen N-A-P-T-H-A, and that you can find at your local Walmart. Common treatments for poison oak, ivy, and sumac rashes include things like hydrocortisone cream, calamine lotion, capsaicin cream, antihistamines like Benadryl or Diphenhydramine. Some recommend the use of rubbing alcohol on the exposed areas. Cool compresses are thought by many to be soothing. In the worst cases, they do give prescription medications like Medrol that speed recovery and help prevent complications. Now, there are home remedies that are also thought to be effective to treat poison ivy rash. Here are just a few. Apple cider vinegar, uh, be aware that it burns at first baking soda paste, Epsom salts or oatmeal baths, and chamomile tea bag compresses. I'll bet you know some other home remedies as well. The good news is that even if you don't treat the rash, it will go away by itself over two to three weeks in most cases. Now, the best prevention is to avoid getting the toxin on your skin in the first place. If you can't avoid exposure, always wear long pants, long sleeve shirts, work gloves and boots if you work in areas known to harbor poison ivy plants. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And make an old man, that's me, very happy by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show, YouTube at DR Bones Nurse Amy Channel, and Facebook on our Doom and Bloom page. Don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on anything in our store at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. Okay, so I guess the only addition that I have there is that poison ivy is one of those things, like Bone said, like 75% of people, if they come into contact with it, will have some kind of a reaction. Some severe, some not so severe. And then there's a group of people like me. We have a, uh, I don't know, I guess it's like I can have a reaction, but it has to be more than touching my skin. So, for a long time, when I was a kid, Poison Ivy Patch was where I ran if my dad was mad at me. Because my dad, like, if he looks at it, he'll get it, and he gets it bad. Uh, and, of course, it, it can transfer from, it's not contagious, but it can transfer. If you have it on you, and you touch somebody, so I was pretty safe for until he cooled off, just by rolling in it. Because he wouldn't touch me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'd get, like, this little patch of poison ivy and it took me a while as a kid to figure out that's wherever you got a scratch or whatever dummy and so if i was you know bushwhacking and getting kind of scratched up with uh briars uh, i would end up with just little welts of poison ivy right along where those scratches are because the uh the oils could get deeper than the skin into the subcutaneous so how can you have jack spear go like skin uh, when you're out around poison ivy, and the answer is with clothing. And one of the things you might consider to see the summer, like wearing a long sleeve shirt in the summer just sucks, right? Remember those shirts I just uh, covered uh, for an item of the day? 
the, uh, the, the, the sun sand surf shirts that are the, for fishing, long sleeve, they wick, sweat away. You wear those, and like when you're doing firewood or whatever, you should probably be wearing gloves anyway. And I know this sounds crazy, but when I work in the woods, even in the heat, I generally wear like jeans or pants. Um, because if you don't, you end up tore up uh, from many different things. And if you do that, and then when you come in, immediately take your clothes off and throw them into the washing machine, uh, your, your propensity to pick up poison ivy will go down. It's not about reducing sensitivity, it's reducing exposure. There's, there's you know, not much else you can do. And the problem with, well, I wash as soon as I get home, and you said bone said 30 minutes. Well, I don't know about you, but when I go out to, like, cut firewood or something like that, I spend a lot more than 30 minutes before I come home. So even if you, you know, religiously wash in good hot soapy water when you get home, you know, go straight to the shower or whatever, if you've been out there for any length of time, odds are that the oils have been on your skin for longer than necessary to cause a reaction. So big part is awareness, too. Pay attention to where it's at. Um, a lot of times with firewood, it's because there's, you know, little bits of it wrapped around a tree or whatever, and... Uh, I, I pity you guys to get it. I really do. By having it in small little specks along a scratch, I, I can't imagine. I've seen people like their arms just covered in it, well, how maddening it has to be. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. I have a question for Gary Collins on weight loss in relationship to having a, an, an injury, a chronic injury that impedes exercise. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the thesimplelifenow.com, where you can go to all things simple living, off the grid, travel trailer living, just happiness in general. That's the best way I can put it, right? At least I hope so. That's the whole point of uh, what I do. But today, this is a good question about the myth of exercising your excess weight off. I know me and Jack are going to agree on this one. I preach diet, 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 and I'm not talking fad diet, something you see on TV. I'm talking nutrition. You, When it comes to being healthy, weight loss, staying in shape, building muscle mass, it is about 75 to 90% diet depending on what you're doing. In combination, obviously, you want to do both. You want to have an exercise program with the proper nutrition. But most people today do neither. So, but over the decades with all these, you know, exercise fads and, you know, this late night exercise equipment that you can buy that does absolutely nothing. I'm preaching this, especially someone like uh, is coming off two injuries. So... The, the odds of you re-injuring yourself by going into some boot camp or, you know, some hardcore exercise program are high. You're already biking, rucking. You know, I would throw in a little bit of resistance training, you know, some weights, bands, body weight, you know, push-ups, dips. You know me, my typicals, push-ups, dips, air squats, and, and pull-ups. You can't go wrong with those. You absolutely can't go wrong. So I would recommend that you put on 30 pounds and about four inches on your waist, go strict either low carb or ketogenic diet for the first, you, you say you got two weeks that they'll pay for it. I don't know if just exercise or it includes any 
diet program food. I doubt it. I'm guessing it's just going to be like a rehab kind of thing. But remember with low carb, it's anywhere from about, depending on who you listen to, but listen to me, is right around 75% your calories will be in protein and fat. The remaining 25% carbohydrates primarily, you know, a little bit of fruit, a little bit of nuts, but primarily vegetables. Okay. Ketogenic is going all the way up to 95% of your, your calories are going to come primarily from fat with a, about five to 10% of protein in there and hardly any carbs. The max you can usually survive these is about two to three weeks. As far as you just start to lose your mind and not only that, but your body starts to adapt. So I, you guys have heard me talk till I'm blue in the face on this one about ketogenic and low carb diets. I've used these on people. I've used them on myself. I kind of know what I'm talking about. Two to three weeks. I've had people argue with me on that one. The best way to use these diets is to cycle on and off them. Trust me on this one. Got decades of this. It is the easiest way. So if you want to do that for two weeks, in 30 days, you can lose those 30 pounds and four pounds because at least five pounds of that's water weight. So now you're looking at 25 pounds and probably three inches once you drop the water weight. I would do that and then transition to strict paleo. And then I would spend, you know, I would recommend a primal paleo diet for the rest of your life. It works. Uh, very few people, uh, does it not work for or can't tolerate it due to the food choices, but it's, it, it's natural living. I mean, it's eating what we're intended to eat. Be careful. Watch out for the paleo desserts. <laughs> you gotta watch those. Um, there's a ton of paleo cookbooks that are nothing but desserts, recipes. A lot of natural sugar. Just be careful with that. I'm talking real paleo like me and Jack uh, preach. So I hope that helps. Again, you can exercise yourself alone to losing weight and health. You're going to have to do a ton of working out to drop 30 pounds and four inches on your waist with just exercise alone without modifying your diet. Remember, there's 3,500 calories in a pound of fat. So you, and it's more than this, these are just rough number games. You would have to go into a calorie deficit of 3,500 calories just to lose that one pound of weight. And that is if you're eating correctly. If you're not eating correctly, it's a totally different ball game because all the sugars, processed foods change your metabolism, change your biochemistry, change your hormone levels, totally different ball game. So... Again, guys, I hope that helps. And remember, I'm a MSB uh, person I have or company, so you get 10% off, and I always provide free shipping. And with my free shipping, you get your order in sometimes as soon as one day if you're close to where I live, but two to three days max. Yeah, you know, Gary and I agree on this, and it's not just Gary and I that agree on this. It's, it's almost everybody, almost everybody out there. Um, that's in the weight loss fitness world that is honest. No matter how much they may differ with Gary and I, I'm talking people that are big on caloric restriction and a diet based in grains and, and fruits and vegetables. 
that wide of a spectrum. And then Gary and I, you know, we're big on the meats, the fats, and the low-carbohydrate vegetables and the few low-carbohydrate fruits as being the centric point of your diet. So that's pretty diverse. But no matter where you go, if you do what a diet dictates, if it's a good diet, you will lose weight. Caloric restriction works if you do it and if you adapt it to the metabolic situation that you're in. And here's my point, though. All of the people behind all of those diets that are legitimate, because just because you say there's a better way than I say and I say there's a better way than you say, doesn't mean that we're not both legitimate. That are legitimate say exactly what Gary said. Weight loss is between 75 and 90% what you eat And then it only leaves you 10 to 25% of how much activity you do. And I know that seems to go counter. And I would say if it's 25%, if it's that high, then you are exercising like the way a professional athlete does in frequency. I mean, you, you really have to start looking at how much effort it takes to burn, let's say, 500 calories. I mean, a lot of times people, they go, they do a really good hard workout, and they might burn 150 calories. It's way easier to not eat 300 calories than it is to burn off an extra 150. That doesn't mean we shouldn't exercise. There's incredible benefits to exercise. When it comes to toning, when it comes to strength building, when it comes to building hand-eye coordination, if you're involved in some kind of an activity that involves that, Exercise that goes along with that activity increases that. Uh, strengthening bones, strengthening joints, strengthening ligaments, um, stretching muscle, uh, longevity of body movement. So just you could have two people that weigh about the same amount. They could be twins. They both could have good diets. They both um, weigh about the same amount. They're both like 85 years old. One that's engaged in a lot of physical activity will have, unless they've injured themselves from improper activity, will generally have much greater mobility than the twin that's 85 and about the same weight. The diet will tend to dictate the weight. The exercise will tend to di dictate the overall physical fitness. So we want to get exercise in where and as we can that furthers our individual fitness goals. But when we think that we're going to, you know, spin class our way or yoga our way or crossfit our way or run our way or push up our way or sit up our way or jumping jack our way or jumping rope our way or weightlifting our way anything like that we're going to use that as the primary means by which we burn and remove fat we are deceiving ourselves and, and if, if if this flies in the face of what you believe and if you're getting mad at me right now What I want you to do is I want you to simply go and figure out in a given workout how many calories you actually burn, how many calories you actually burn. And then I want you to think about this simple fact. The number will change based on your weight and how fast you run. But you know, a jogging speed of about eight to nine minutes a mile for an average man Running a mile will burn about 120 to 130 calories. Running a mile. Um, so that will allow you to eat a little bit more than one piece of bread. 
and basically, you see what I'm saying, and take it off as though you didn't need it. So, like, if you just just started running a mile a day, that's all you did. You started running a mile every day, and you were running at about a nine-minute mile pace, and you're burning about 120 calories. Two pieces of bread are about 173 calories. So you could have maybe a piece and a quarter of bread that you could you could now eat, and then you would be back to zero. So what's what is a, a more difficult thing in your life to do to stop eating that bread or to run a mile a day? And I know what you're thinking. Why don't we do both? And and we can, and we probably should. But what ends up happening is people have lives that they're living. And most people do not have the time to put in a significant workout seven days a week. Okay, So a lot of people that, that are committed to their health and are committing to getting exercise, put in exercise, whether it be planned exercise like running, going to the gym, whatever, or planned outdoor physically strenuous activity, gardening, homesteading, stuff like that, um, and, and they get that in three or four days a week. Okay, so we can we can get that in that three or four days a week, and we burn those two, maybe a good workout, 250 calories. But if we don't adjust it with diet, we're at like basically a net level on the days we don't work out, but we're still way over in either caloric or the wrong type of intake. Shocking with paleo and primal carb restriction, like Gary and I preach. If, if we're not making those adjustments, we're still having those high blood sugar levels, the glucagon, uh, insulin imbalances, uh, excessive fat production by the body, fat cell production, etc., failure to burn. So we can control that diet seven days a week like clockwork no matter what. And it ends up in the, in the net analysis, depending on the diet, the activity level and the individual, 75 to 90% of your weight loss will be directly attributed to your diet. If you do no exercise whatsoever, and and that's why it's, it's so it's not about not exercising, but it's about focus on the diet above the exercise. And I also think this is the case for a lot of people. Uh, the reason they fail with diet is they begin their exercise regimen too soon. If you are going to make a radical shift in the way that you eat and going keto, going primal, going paleo going old school Atkins, going South Beach diet, which is totally not the same thing at all, for instance, going anywhere in a, a, a legitimate regime of eating is a radical shift. When you do that, your body is going to take time to adjust. And if especially when you go on a low carb, if you've been eating sugar, if you've been eating bread, If you've been eating pasta, if you've been eating lots of grain, if, if that's what you, you know, the, even if you were eating relatively healthy that way, but you've been eating that stuff, when you first do it, it is like, it, it is exactly the same as an addict going off a drug. Your body's not going to be happy with you. You're going to feel low energy. You're going to feel not so good. You're going to get cravings, etc. And I believe it is better. So you bring that new diet around, and maybe you take a walk every day or something like that, but you don't worry about strenuous exercise. For at least two to three weeks, let the body adapt to the new biology that it has to develop because you've changed so drastically what you're eating. And when you stop having these feelings of just like 
this lethargy, etc. Start exercising. Now, there's a point where, you know, maybe the lack of activity is the problem, where it can go too far the other way. So after like two weeks, three weeks, then you have to kick yourself in the ass and go do it. But I find most people that I talk to, if they give themselves two weeks after that radical shift, straight up 14 days, and they say, like, so I'm going to make this easy for myself, I'm going to start on a Monday. No one wants to start a diet in the middle of a weekend. So they start on a Monday. This is my drop-dead day. I'm going to be 100% faithful to what I'm supposed to be doing. And then the next Monday comes, the following Monday. By then, if they start doing whatever their exercise regime is going to be, they tend to not only get better results, they tend to be more likely to stay on the new way of living and make it a lifestyle change instead of a fad diet. Uh, I hope that all makes sense. But yeah, 75 to 90% is what you eat. What's interesting is my niece-in-law, I guess you'd call her, my nephew's wife, is a Instagram model and she's very involved in that type of thing. And she's teaching nutrition, exercise, etc. to the bikini model type crowd. Right? That's That's the type of people that she's giving nutritional and fitness advice to. This girl works out. She has abs. I don't know if I ever had it. I don't know if I had abs like she's got when I was in the freaking Airborne. Um, she is 100% dedicated to physical activity, physically working out, staying in shape, toning, muscle development, etc. Tells people the exact same thing. It's the exact same number. 75 to 90% is what you eat, and the rest is how your physical activity works out. So if you have an injury, then you find the activity of the work, and you do not use it as a reason that you think that you wouldn't lose weight. All right, with that, let's go on to another one. This one on knife making with a blank of steel versus forging your own. Patrick, take it away. Hey, guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Today's question comes from Gordon in Georgia. He says, hey, Jack and Patrick, I want to know if it makes a big difference if you forge a knife or just grind one from a blank. Details. I've made a few knives, some by forging and some by grinding. I'm better set up for grinding and actually prefer the process, but don't want to sacrifice strength, edge retention, and durability. Assuming I heat treat either process, what difference will it make, if any, in the end product? I'm willing to do whatever offers the best overall product. Thanks, Gordon in Georgia. Hey, Gordon, thanks for your question. The quick answer is no, it does not make a difference. Forging offers some advantages in applications like a hook on a crane where there's going to be stresses on that hook. And in the forging process, there is a, a grain structure, for lack of a better word, that is formed. And so by starting with all your grains going in the, the same direction, when you bend that hook around, your grains are going to flow around and make a stronger hook than if you were to take a solid chunk of steel and mill it down to the hook shape that you would end up with otherwise. But with something like knives and knife making, the steel, you're, the, really the, the forging that you're doing is, is just tapering the edge. And every knife, whether forged or stock removal, ends with stock removal. With forging, you're going to try to forge that blade as close to the final shape as possible to minimize the grinding that needs to be done. But you're going to take that knife to the grinder and grind in the final edges and 
tapers and all that. The real question is, is which one is going to end up with a better product? And when you forge a blade, every time you put that knife into the fire and every time you pull it out, there's another opportunity to do something that is going to lessen the quality of that steel. So without years of experience, you are going to end up with a better blade from a stock removal knife than you will from forging. And even if you are experienced, advantages of a forged blade are really minimal, if any at all. There's a lot of people, they'll tell you different things. They'll tell you that, you know, you're compacting the grain structure of the steel and, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, even stock removal steel goes through processes that's similar to forging, where it's rolled down to reduction, and that, that steel is compacted and worked over. With an exception of the steel that I use primarily is the XHP. It's a powdered metallurgy steel in which the grain structure is pretty well perfect from the start. So if you were to try to forge XHP, which is possible, all you're really going to do is lessen the quality of the steel. I hope that answers your question. There's a lot of debate out there over forge versus stock removal. I've done a lot of research. I've talked to master smiths that are part of the ABS. I've asked them the same question myself, and their answer is we enjoy forging, and that's, that's why we do it. Forging is fun. It's getting as close to the raw form of making a knife as possible. And that's what drew me to it to begin with. There's a YouTube channel that I really enjoy watching. It's called Primitive Technology. And the guy goes out there and he builds huts and he builds forges and all sorts of stuff with just his bare hands. And he'll take stone. He's taken stones and made axes. And the closer you can get to making something with as minimal tools as possible, there's a draw to that. I, I love to learn things myself. I would love to, you know, smelt my own iron, but there's a reason that stuff is primitive technology. In today's day and age, we've got incredible tools and materials at our disposal. And as far as making the best quality cutting tool possible, I believe stock removal is, is the way to go. Thanks for your question, Gordon. I appreciate your question. If anybody else has a question, feel free to send them to Jack at survivalpodcast.com. I hope you guys have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you later. This Once again, this has been Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives. Have a great day. All right, next up on the uh, subject of homeschooling, we have Mike and Sue LaPrise, and... Uh I want to kind of frame this a little bit for folks that maybe have never really thought about this. When you homeschool, a lot of people have become open to that idea, but many people that are open to that idea are not yet parents, or their children are so young that they're not at the complete decision-making process yet, or their kids are grown and they would have done it, but they didn't do it, so now it doesn't matter for them, and maybe they're thinking about maybe their kids doing it with their grandkids or whatever. And and until you start to really go down the path, you kind of forget there's like this whole thing about, well, there is that little thing that we get at the end of high school called a diploma. And I think we've made that thing out to be more important than it is. Uh, I needed my high school diploma. Uh, never. Never. The fact that it existed, though, 
was important when I joined the Army. To be able to join the Army, basically, and I didn't really need a diploma because I joined the Army when I was still in school. I was 17 years old when I, when I joined. Uh, my father had to sign a piece of paper for me so I could join. But I was close enough to graduate. You know, It was my senior year. And you have my academic history. And basically the school had to send a thing to my recruiter that said, it is absolutely expected that Jack Spirico will graduate this year in June of two, uh, 1990, right? And so, okay, then they... So I needed it to get in the military. Had I already been out of school, I would have been needed it then. Um, I have been asked many times when applying for a job... You know, are you a high school graduate? When did you graduate? What courses did you take, right? You're applying for a, a six-figure sales job based on 10 years of your career history, and it still says, what courses did you take in high school? Oh, I don't know the ones they made me. But I, I can tell you for a fact that none of the employers that I ever actually filled out a job application for ever said, let me see it, and none of them ever verified a high school diploma. But if you want to go to college or certain vocational schools, or get into certain levels of military service, or other, or certain government employment, or whatever. You need proof that you completed high school. And so that leaves homeschool people with the concept of, well, we have to have that. And we've actually had Mike and Sue answer a question before, which is, how do you create a diploma for your homeschooler? It says they've completed work to the 12th grade level, so they can go to college and what have you. And, you know, we had some interesting points for them, like, well, a lot of times they go to college before they graduate. To the community college, you need a test score to get in, basically. Uh, and so some of these homeschoolers have multiple uh, community college credit hours before they technically graduate. So do many Uh, uh, government school students as well now, but it's a little easier to do as a homeschooler because you don't have to take phony baloney courses <laughs> to take your time up, so there's more time to do that. But when we look at things like government employment and colleges and stuff like that, they like things from the government, so this puts the homeschooler, do I have my homeschooler take a GED exam? Or Like I said during the intro, can we have both? So that's the that's the mindset we're coming at this question from Mike and Sue. What say you? This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Tamlin. What are the advantages or disadvantages of a young person getting a GED versus a homeschool high school diploma? Details. My daughter is 17, and I have homeschooled her since second grade. I'm getting ready to boot this baby bird out of the nest. Her education and career goals are for the future are to become a registered veterinary assistant and then registered veterinary tech. This career would require an associate's degree at most. As we recently moved to Texas, she has taken the TSI and passed part of it. She will retake the second portion next school year. She has completed a few college classes at the local community college. I was hoping she would nearly have her associate's degree by the time she moves out, but that's not going to happen. I'm wondering if a GED would be more valuable, or is the stigma of a GED more of a negative than a positive? Many people automatically equate GED with high school dropout. What do you think? 
Well, the general, the GED is the General Education Development. It was invented in World War II in the 1940s for returning soldiers who had gone to war and served their country, even though they didn't graduate from high school. So in that generation, if you weren't high school material, you weren't college material, early on in life, you got a job and you went to work and you learned how to work hard, and then you went and served your country. And so as a reward, our country said, We're going to give you a high school diploma. So my dad was in Germany, and when he came back, he was sent off to take a test. He said, yes, sir. And he took his test, and he got um, he passed it, but he also was given a year worth of college credit because of the score he got on the test. And he was uh, sent his GED and that paper back to his mother to keep it for him. And she went down to his high school and got him a diploma, which his dad accepted at the end of that next year. It was really cute. So, yes, there is a stigma attached to a GED. Absolutely. Yeah. There's the, the negative of that, uh, you're right, uh, Tamlin. A lot of people immediately associate GED with high school dropout. Uh, we have a friend, Melissa. Yeah, she, 15 years after graduating from high school at a private school, went to take a certification class, and they wanted her high school diploma. She couldn't find it. The high school had closed. So she went to get her GED, and it just seemed awfully silly, but that's what she needed to get that certification. Yes, yeah, so about 35 years old, she was going to get her GED. Right. And my brother has his GED, but he also has his master's. And nobody asks him when they find out he has his master's. They don't say... Where did you graduate from high school? You know, people just don't ask that. It's okay. Just once you get 30 credit hours in college, you're pretty safe to say people aren't going to ask you about, did you get a GED, what kind of high school diploma you have, or when you're working. I don't know. Does anybody ask you? Yeah, we have five homeschool graduates yep. currently, still two, two more at home. But of those five graduates, they're all gainfully employed. Uh, and none of them have their GED, and nobody's asked for their GED. People have asked for their high school diploma, and we pinned up those diplomas. So, and we put them on really nice paper, and they look just like a diploma that you would get from a high school. Yeah, I'll make you one. So just in case, you might think, oh, maybe I should get the GED just in case, but we would recommend you not do that because if your kid does apply for college and they have to fill out the FAFSA form, it probably will link up with that, and they'll go, oh, why did you get your GED? So save that, get that, if it's really necessary. Yes. So I think one of the things, Tamlin, that you've done really well is you've, you've determined where your daughter wants to go, and that's something we would suggest for all parents. Ask your kids, where are they going? As we walk through life, as you're educating them, as they're learning, not being educated, as they're learning, uh, determine what they want to do. And then look at that and say, okay, what is that trajectory? And then determine what does it take to get there? What are the things that are required to get to that destination? Whether it's going to Texas A&M, what's going to be required, whether it's going to be a vet tech, what are the things that are required? Okay, so the, she also mentioned the TSI. It's the Texas Success Initiative Assessment. And it's, it's really frustrating to me because there's the high school exit exam and then there's a college placement exam, and they make it sound like it's a test, but it's really a placement exam in math, reading, and writing. And depending on, again, if you're under 18, 
You have to pass it at a college level to take college classes. If you're over 18, it just tells what your remedial classes that you're going to take. Same test, new name. They're going to keep coming up with new tests and new names. But the best part is um, the Atlantic Monthly had an article about 120 colleges that are no longer requiring testing to get into college. Yep, because it's a, they say it's a barrier to entry. And Is that a bad thing? <laughs> no, I don't know that that's a bad thing. But the other thing it does it, it is they are saying that it does not indicate success in college. Then what's the point of the test? I'm not sure. I guess the point of the test is... Uh, making money. Making money. I yeah. guess the other part of it is I'd say, I would say, yeah, that's true that the test doesn't necessarily uh, show success in college. I did really well on the SATs. And uh, my first couple of years of college were awful. <laughs> Well, they were fun. Well, they were lots yeah, of fun. So. Not so good education-wise. Okay, some other interesting things about graduating from high school and being successful in life. In 1940, only 50% of the students graduated from high school. Those are the students who started high school. So there's a lot of people like Michael's mom who in eighth grade, she finished eighth grade, her mom died, there were like 11 kids, she was the oldest daughter, she took care of everybody, and then she had her own family and Never had to go back to high school. She had a wonderful life and um, no diploma required, no GED. And it's interesting, 1940, 50% graduation rate. 2015, roughly now they say 83% graduation rate. And That seems awful high. Yeah. So if you imagine in 1940, probably just about 100% of those kids were working, whether they graduated from high school or not. In 1960... 1978, 60% of teens were working, and today they estimate 35% of teens are working. So I think the problem isn't the GED or the high school diploma or college. It's we're not working. Yes, and so now they're talking about college. So if, if you go to college, if you graduate from high school, you're going to attend college, 19% of people that start college graduate in four years. It's a pretty low number. Is that 81% don't graduate in four years? That would be 81% okay. don't graduate in four years. So what we recommend is when your kids are, as soon as you can find them a job, in, in our neighborhood it's bucking rivets on an airplane, working with the cabinet maker, mowing a yard, working at the party ranch nearby, the water garden place that does plants. Get them working. Find them a job, something to do where they can earn a little money. And you might have to incentivize them by withdrawing some of your resources so they want to go. And work. Try different jobs. I think I had 200 jobs and between the time I was 14 and 18. It must have been at least 200. Yeah. So one of the things also with school and and having the child understand what they want to do. A lot of times people go to college. I'm a perfect example. I went to college not really sure what I wanted to do, thought I wanted to be an accountant. You take your two years of your prerequisite courses, and then in your junior year you start taking your core curriculum and realize there's no yeah. way that I want to be that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like, oh, got to change Although, the direction. You've managed to put in many years as an accountant. Yeah, isn't that incredible? So then college costs too much, takes too long, and graduates too few students. And it's really cool with technology the way it's going that there are going to be many other ways to get the information you need to do a job. Yeah, and the one last thing we'd like to talk about that Tamlin mentioned, 
was that her daughter was getting pushed out of the nets. And I think one of the things we would say is, don't hurry your kids out the door. So, uh, Sue, you were, um, went to college, but you were living at home yep. when you went to school and at the University of Houston. And I went away to school at 18, and that was actually a big mistake. It was. Yeah. You're very immature. I was. I could have handled it. And I parted like crazy, <laughs> yes. and that was really not good. Yes, and I'm not saying our kids are perfect and so they can live at home forever. I mean, it's frustrating because there's different boundaries at different ages and, you know, they want more freedom and you still have to manage the house and stuff. So it's a little bit complicated, but it's safer to be together as a family, especially for young girls. It's safer to be at home where you can check in on still have a conversation and still give some input into their life and offer yeah. suggestions. And we have kids who've grown and moved on and then moved back. Um, yeah. Based on different places in their life. Yeah. Yeah. So our son was in the Air Force. When he got out of the Air Force, instead of taking a walk like Jack did to the Appalachian Trail, he came back home, got himself reestablished, and then moved back out again. And actually him and his wife, um, they were getting out of a rental apartment and buying their first house. And their rental, the lease on their apartment was up. And they moved back in with us for several weeks while they were waiting to close on their house. So we've had our kids come and, come and go a couple of different times. Yeah, we love yeah. it. Yeah, we love it. So, um, yeah, the GED, I would say it's probably not the best option unless somebody really requires it. But if you have your homeschool diploma, I think that should, should certainly suffice. Yes. Again, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com. For the expert counsel, back to you, Jack. So most of the time, I listen to these answers while putting the show together, and when I do my intro, I don't yet know exactly what they're going to say, and that is the case today. Uh, there are certain people, I will not name them, who I always have to listen to their answers as soon as they come in so that I know whether or not I have to kick them back. You can guess who those two um, male individuals are. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I bet if people are like, I know who those people are. Anyway, um, so in this case, I didn't know what they were going to say. When I talked about the Taco Bell girl with why we, why can't we have both, and for those that have never seen the commercial, this commercial like, do we have soft tacos or hard tacos? And the Taco Bell, or, uh, it's not Taco Bell, it's Old El Paso, I'm sorry. Old El Paso, you know, they sell the taco shells. Apparently they have a taco kit where inside the box is flour tortillas and the taco shells. And they made a big deal about it. It's this little cute little girl. It's like, why can't we have both? Or something like that. And they all cheer. So... That's where I was going, the stigma around GED. A lot of times people hear GED and they think, oh, you're a high school dropout. Oh, you, you failed high school, and so you had to go get this kind of second-tier, second-rate thing. But then there may be scenarios where there's some kind of a requirement. So I think it makes a lot of sense to do the, the, the high school uh, diploma thing for the homeschooler and, you know, if you go get the GED, you don't necessarily need to use that, but you have it in your back pocket. I also think there's another component to this, and, and they kind of alluded to this, but if you go into college, it's irrelevant. What's your highest level of education? Two years of college, four years of college, whatever. No one cares. I mean, literally, no one cares anymore about high school. I'm sorry, they don't. Because now you are a high school graduate. I'm sorry, now you are a college graduate or you have some college. All right, with that, let's go on to uh, a question for Keith Snow on breakfast. Keith, take it away. 
Hey, Jeff Keats, Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Dave in Colorado wanted to give you some ideas on filling breakfast ideas. Now, um, here's one for you. I know you mentioned you can only eat so many eggs, but I'm going to come at you right away with an egg dish. Now, what I like to do is take a skillet and I'll put in, and we're going to talk about a lot of fat, which helps to keep you full. Um, I'll put in about a half a stick of butter, and then I take um, a potato, and I'll shred it on a box grater, and then put it into a clean kitchen towel, and I don't peel the potato, by the way, into a clean kitchen towel and wring out all the potato water so the shredded potatoes are very dry. I wind up with about, a, I don't know, half a cup or so of shredded potatoes. Once the pan with the butter comes up to temperature, about a medium heat, I'll spread those potatoes out. Put maybe some minced um, green onions or chives on top of that and cook that for 10 to 15 minutes. You don't want to turn it or flip it too many times. What you're looking for is for it to start to get a little crisp and golden brown. Now, once that happens, um, you're going to take, and this is what I do, I'll take three large eggs, and you got to try to buy good eggs, um, maybe from a local source. That's the best way to eat eggs, not from the supermarket. And uh, beat those eggs up, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper. The eggs go in with about a half a cup of your favorite shredded cheese. Um, while all that's happening and you're starting to mix that all together, um, basically you're just making eggs, potatoes, cheese. It doesn't need to be you know, mixed carefully. It's just all one thing at this point. Um, you're going to take an avocado and an entire ripe avocado, peel it or cut it in half and scoop it out and chop it up. So once the eggs and the cheese have all melted and you basically have some scrambled eggs and potatoes with either chives or green onions in there, uh, make sure it's seasoned well. And then I take a, a corn tortilla and I'll take one corn tortilla and a lot of times I'll just turn a burner on the stove and I'll put it right on top of the burner and just with a pair of tongs, I'll flip it around a few times just to kind of cook the sort of uh, raw taste out of it, give it a little crispiness and kind of that griddled flavor. That goes down on a plate. I take all the eggs and potatoes and cheese, put that on top with one chopped up avocado and then usually some green salsa or whatever, hot sauce. Um, I use a fermented pepper sauce, whatever you want on top of there. You can put some fresh cilantro too, and I'll eat that. Now, that is a pile of food. Um, three eggs with an entire avocado and some cheese and that half a stick of butter and little potatoes for bulk. That is going to keep you full easily till lunch. Now, I'll have that maybe once or twice a week, and that is a lovely thing. Now, I went for about five months eating a vegan diet, which is mostly just carbohydrates. It's very low fat. Dave, I know in your question you mentioned you don't want anything light, but that was one of the problems on um, on a vegan diet is I was just hungry all the time, and the more carbohydrates I ate, the more inflamed and stiff and miserable I became. So now I'm back eating sort of a low-carbish, you know, ketogenic at times type diet. So this dish um, is pretty low in carbohydrates, this this egg um, and avocado and cheese dish I just mentioned, and it's very filling. I mean, I eat that and I am stuffed like to the rafters. I won't need to eat for a long time. So that's one. I'm going to give you another quick idea. Uh, steel-cut oatmeal. Now, you get steel-cut oats in any supermarket. Um, not rolled oats, but steel-cut oats. Now, I like to cook those. Just look on the package and use their um, ratios. I like to cook those in milk instead of water. I'll put a pinch of salt in there. And uh, once those are cooked, I will bowl those up, and I'll cook like one cup. And this is uh, a large amount. 
And then I'll put a little bit of heavy cream on top of that. Also some butter, a couple of tablespoons of butter. So butter and heavy cream, maybe four or five tablespoons of heavy cream. Your favorite fresh fruit, you know, seasonal fruit. It could be blueberries, strawberries, you know, freeze dried fruit, whatever you have. And then I like to put maybe about a teaspoon of real, you know, grade A sort of Vermont maple syrup on top of that. And that's awesome. That's a great dish. I don't put sugar in it. I do use something called Lakanto, L-A-K-N-K-A-N-T-O. It's a, it's monk fruit type of, um, you know, sweetener. And I find it to be quite pleasant. It doesn't have a bad aftertaste, almost no glycemic response, and it gives a good sweetness. So that bowl of oatmeal there that I just mentioned with the fruit and the heavy cream and a little butter, that is going to really stuff you out for a long time. So those are just two ideas um, for being full. The other thing you can do is take a look on the Internet, or if you want to email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com, I'm happy to send you my recipe. I make a keto-style granola, and it's a mix of nuts, like fatty nuts, like macadamia nuts and pecans. It has coconut oil in it, um, a couple of other ingredients that I'm not remembering at the moment, but it's a very hearty type of granola. It's got a couple of eggs in it. Again, I use that Lakanto sweetener. It all gets mixed together. It goes on a sheet tray. It's baked in the oven, and then it's allowed to cool off, and it gets slightly crisp. Now, that is, it's got a lot of fat in it from all those nuts and the coconut oil, and I will take that and just put it in a bowl, and, you know, I just put, like, almond milk on top of it, and that stuff is ultra filling. I mean, the amount of fat in those nuts is uh, kind of over the top. There's not a lot of carbohydrates in there, but that is also a very good and filling breakfast idea. So Dave, I hope that helps you. Um, I probably eat eggs maybe three times a week. And, you know, other times I'll just have a bowl of avocados. I'll take two whole avocados, chop them up, a little salsa, maybe some shredded cheese on there. And uh, I'll have at it. So those are a couple of ideas. I hope that helps. wanted to remind everybody out there in TSP land, if you want a free uh, jar of my northern Italian seasoning, just go to tryharvesteating.com. And uh, I will send you out a bottle. I just ask that you cover the shipping expense. And additionally, the Food Storage Feast course at foodstoragefeast.com has a free seven-day trial for those of you that want to kind of get into the back of the course. So keep that in mind. I hope everybody has a great weekend. And thanks to you, Jack, for all the work that you've done. And congratulations. I know you're coming up on 10 years. Boy, does time fly. You've put out a gazillion episodes in 10 years. So thanks for what you do, Jack. And uh, take care, everybody. Bye-bye. I just, I, I find it interesting. I remember when all of a sudden Keith Snow was all about vegan cooking, and I'm like, I, I wonder how long that's going to last, and apparently not very long. I uh, I understand people that are vegan from a standpoint of they don't want to hurt animals. I, I, I understand that. No one really wants to hurt an animal. Um, there There's animals that I raise on my farm for meat, uh, and I take their life. And I never consider it a good day the day that I have to do that. It's something that needs to be done, and I'm willing to take responsibility to do it for myself. Unlike many people that bitch about things like hunting, uh, but sit down and eat steak every night that somebody else killed. But I get it. I understand how you can build a really healthy lifestyle as a vegetarian. I, I, I think you can do better, but I, I get how you can. If you're willing to use dairy, if you're willing to use you know, eggs, if you're not going to not use something because there's a little bit of butter in it or something like that, it's actually much easier 
to build a well-balanced diet on a vegetarian diet than a vegan diet. Um, but what I have found is that no matter how much people profess that they are healthy on a vegan diet, 90% or more have chronic problems. And they just do. They never like to admit it, but you know, whenever they're talking about being a vegan, they always tell you how they have no problems. But then when they're talking about just their lives in general, just con and it is, it is autoimmune, it is inflammation, and it's the same thing, and it's depression, and it's over and over and over. And then somebody will show you like these 10 you know, ripped dudes that are bodybuilders, that are vegan bodybuilders. Yet these dudes are basically treating eating like a chemistry set. And they are specifically formulating every meal that they eat. And many of them are also, well, I'm a, I'm a vegan on, yeah, on steroids. But anyway, I digress. Even if they're not, they're planning their meals at a level that the average person does not have the time to do. That is their job. Their job is their diet and their exercise. And most of us aren't going to be that way. Um, I find the easy, and this is why I recommend it, the easiest way to eat healthy is a plant-based high protein diet. And people say how is that that's how is that a thing? Because to get the amount of carbohydrates that you need from the type of vegetables we're talking, the total volume if you look at it on a plate, there's a lot of plant to make up that amount because you're eating a lot of fiber and mineral and nutrient and you're still relatively low calorie and low carb per ounce. So, I just funny that it seems to me that everybody that tries it for purely health reasons without any kind of religious ideology doesn't last long on the world of the vegan train just funny you know anyway so let's talk about what i want to talk about today it's not going to be a long jack segment today 10 minutes maximum that i need to talk about it's probably less But I am sick of it uh, and i don't even hear much of it because i don't watch a lot of the news But every once in a while, I got to get in my truck and go do something, and I, I have that old bad habit of turning on AM radio. And you know, if it's in the afternoon, it'll be Sean Hannity. If it's during the day, early part of the day, it might be one of the local guys. Maybe I bump into Glenn Beck or something like that. And the commonality that I've seen: uh, Mark Levin, Michael Savage, all of these people, all of them. And I'm sure the left does it too. They just don't have popular and successful talk shows on the radio. Uh, when they talk about, and I guess the left would come from a different angle with it, but the left is going to defend the FBI. And the right defends everybody in the FBI except all the people at the top of the FBI that clearly behaved in an unethical way. And, and I'd like you to do something that's going to be difficult for you, no matter what side of this you're on for this discussion. I would like you to table your politics for this discussion, because that is indeed the problem. If you think Donald Trump colluded with Russia, that him and Vladimir Putin were on the phone every day talking to each other about this, well, one, you're nuts, but two, okay, fine, you believe that, put it on the shelf for this discussion. And if you think that the FBI specifically targeted Trump, and you really think that it's all about Comey and Page and Strzok, and that's really all that it is, I want you to shelve that for a second and, and stop worrying about your guy being the target. Because this is what I hear. The rank and file. Not, not, well, this is disgusting. This is disgraceful. It's a constitutional crisis. But the rank and file guys are great. Okay, this is a fundamental reality. When you are a leader in an organization, the most important thing that you can do 
is make sure that the leaders below you are doing their job consistent with the values of that organization and consistent with your values. And if you don't, their malice, their malintent, their incompetence, their bias, whatever it is, will trickle down through their ranks. And the leader's primary job is to make sure that the leaders beneath them aren't doing that and that they indeed are not doing that themselves. You cannot have an organization where the director of the FBI, James Comey, is, is, is behaving in the way that he behaved. The, the top counterintelligence agent in the bureau was behaving the way Strzok was behaving. And then say, well, you know, it's just this, this political group at the top. All of the FBI agents guys are just wonderful people. Now, you, I'm also not saying that they're all corrupted. I'm telling you the concepts that you're seeing here are throughout the rank and file of the FBI and law enforcement as a whole. Do you not think that the average cop, let's not even go FBI, the average cop investigating a murder and he is convinced that the guy he's going after did it while he's investigating doesn't say horrible things about the person he's investigating? This is the, the way that most law enforcement investigators come after people. The reason they go after the person is they assume that they're guilty. Now, when we add politics to that and it becomes political, it's even worse. But here's an example of this from rank-and-file FBI. And, and it's just really just stop kissing the ass of an organization that has major problems. Ross Ulbright. Ross Albright, as many of you know, had his, his mother Lynn on, on the air. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has refused to hear his appeal. So they're really in a, a bad way now. He's doing double life uh, without parole. I think it's double life plus 20 or something like that. It's just stupid. Uh, for building a website in the end. While he was being investigated, two of the FBI investigators that were investigating him tampered with evidence and stole money, in this case in the form of Bitcoin, from Silk Road. Now, we don't think they did it. We know they did it. We know they did it because they're both in federal prison right now. I think one's doing seven years and one's doing ten years for tampering with evidence during an investigation and stealing money. They were not politically motivated, were they? Where's, where's Sean Hannity? Where's Mark Levin? Where, 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 where's Glenn Beck when it comes to Ross Albright? Because he's a libertarian and because he thinks that people should be able to do drugs if they want to? That, that, that he doesn't deserve justice? That for building a website, this man deserves to spend the rest of his life in federal prison? Really? And when FBI agents violate their oath and tamper with evidence and steal money... From the organization they're investigating, no one says anything. We hear nothing about this. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, none of them say a word about it. Why? Because we are talking about rank-and-file FBR, aren't we? Aren't we? And guess what? The fact that this was done when Ross Albright was placed on trial, his attorney, of course, wanted to tell the jury, by the way... The guy that they're saying did all this stuff and they're presenting all this evidence to you to say that he did this stuff, 
There's two agents who were investigating him in federal prison right now because they tampered with evidence. And those are the ones that we know about. To introduce you know, what we would call the legal system, reasonable doubt. And by the way, they stole money. They're also, in, they're also convicted for that. And again, this is not debatable. They're in prison for doing this. They pled guilty because when they got caught, it was very obvious that they were guilty and they knew they couldn't get out of it. These are rank-and-file FBI agents. Okay? And that they were not allowed to tell the jury in defense of their client that this had occurred in the investigation they were defending themselves from. This is why people are freaking out about this. Because it shows the rot and the problem within the Department of Justice, within the Federal Bureau of Investigation. That doesn't mean there aren't damn good men doing damn good work there. But this is a cancer. You can't have people at the top be corrupt and not have corruption trickle through the organization. You can't have people at the top that profess to follow the ethics fail to do so and not have it trickle down. You can't have a five-year-old and walk around with every word out of your mouth being a cuss word and not end up with a kid that cusses when they shouldn't cuss. You guys hear me curse on the air occasionally, one necessary. You know, my grandkids are here. I don't walk around and F this and, you know, and, and whatever. I don't do that. Because I know that they're going to emulate me. Kids emulate their parents. Kids emulate their grandparents. And in organizations like the Federal Bureau of Investigation, agents emulate the agents above them. Especially if they're driven by a desire to move up within the Bureau. Or the department. Or the agency. Or whatever, wherever it is. It doesn't matter. You cannot have... You cannot have a cancer in your leadership and not have it affect your entire organization. That doesn't mean the organization can't be redeemed. That doesn't mean that you can't put new leadership in place. But what you're seeing, and this is what the right wing is getting right, the right wing media is getting right about this, you're seeing the deep state. This is the deep state. And one of the Democrat Congress people yesterday during the Strzok uh, interviews did a really good job of pointing out all the Republicans that hate Trump. He's not wrong. Never said the deep state was partisan. The deep state is the deep state. But if you start actually pulling this apart and understanding it and stop making it about Donald Trump, and that's, that's the problem. Trump is so polarizing that even the people on his side are polarized. If you make this about, you take the name Trump away and your emotional attachment to it, good or bad, and you look at it this way, a person, through the electoral process set forth by the Constitution of the United States, was chosen by the American people to be their president and to have the powers of the presidency for at least four years, according to the law of the land and the contract with the people that is the Constitution of the United States of America. That individual is unconventional, to, you know, to be blunt, right? That individual is doing things that the status quo doesn't want done. And the entities within the government, within the bureaucracy, have attempted to thwart that at every level. If you like the guy, 
you're upset. If you hate the guy, you should be just as upset. We have to stop making apologies. We have to stop worshiping people because, oh, well, they're an FBI agent. They must be good. It's just a few bad apples. Where have we heard that before? This is the same, and it's the same nonsense. It's a pattern that repeats itself. Well, she's a teacher, so she's a hero. Some teachers are idiots. Some teachers are morons. Some teachers are shitbags. Some teachers are amazing people. And some teachers are heroes. But you can't just make a lump. But I will tell you this. If you have a school run by a principal who is an outstanding educator that puts the needs of those children above everything else in that school, you will have a group of teachers that to some degree do the same. If you have a principal of a school that's just there for a job advancement and a paycheck and doesn't really give a damn and is about the control and, and, the, and, and subjecting people to the will of the state, the majority of the educators in that school will become more like her. Your organization will become more like its leadership. Whether it's good, neutral, or bad, you will become more like the people you associate with. And Strzok associated with his subordinates, who associates with their subordinates, who associates with their subordinates. You cannot get away from this. This is why in the military, when upper command identifies a commander, a captain, a lieutenant, a light colonel, someone who really is a problem. They will do everything they can to remove them as swiftly as possible because they know the toxicity will trickle down through their brigade, their company, the platoon, etc. I'm not saying they always can do it. There's bureaucracy there, too. It's difficult. But the desire becomes immediate. How do we make this change? And when you learn about leadership in the military, you learn that as you conduct yourself, so will those that you lead. So every time you hear, oh, this is terrible, all oh, this is awful, but the rank and file, understand it's bullshit. It's bullshit. If we have this much corruption that we can see by pulling back the Band-Aid, it's time to pull the scab off and look at the wound underneath the scab, which is gangrenous. And until we're willing to do that with all of these organizations, we're not going to get anywhere. And most people don't want to because they want to defend their position. Trump, America, MAGA, yeah! He's evil, he's a Nazi, he's a... Mis I mean, it's just, it's just... The American people are so easily divided. They're so easily divided. And this crap about Russia, the success that Russia has had has not been about the election. It's been after the election. The fact that two years later we're still fighting about Russian interference is Russia's masterstroke. Their masterstroke. Buy a few Facebook ads, deploy a couple bots, hack some information that people are too stupid to protect and release it, let people just know the truth about what's going on, and sit back and let them fight with each other and weaken their own positions. If we actually wanted to counter what Russia did as far as anything they did touch in our elections, we'd say, you know what, it's irrelevant. We run our own country, piss off. And by the way, before I close up, we're the last nation that should ever lecture any nation on interference with elections. There is no nation that has stuck its nose deeper 
into elections in other countries than our own. None. From an above board and a below board and a completely nefarious way. We have destabilized entire governments. We have created coups. We have gone in and manipulated private companies and used those to manipulate uh, elections. We have stuck our nose and our fingers into every democratic process that we thought we could influence and that we thought we could benefit from doing so. We are the worst offender here. And we have no place to bitch about a few fake news stories and a few Facebook ads. We just don't. And if we actually saw to the education of our populace, to the knowledge that we have a constitutional republic, and what that constitution actually says and means, then we would not have to worry about a fake news story, a Russian bot. We wouldn't have to worry about any of those things. To be a free and independent republic, we need an educated population. And we have a population that's lazy and willfully ignorant, which is why I am a political atheist and I don't take any sides in this at all. In fact, when I tell you this, it's kind of like me telling you what the Bible says. You say you profess to believe this? Well, there's what this says you're supposed to do. I have my own way and my own place that I'm going. But if you want to profess to be an American and you want to profess to believe in the democracy behind our constitutional republic, we're not a democracy. No, we have a democratic process through which we enact our constitutional republic. That's how we elect our officials. And if you want to do that, then the Constitution is the means by which that is done. You might want to crack a book and read a book about the Constitution, read the Constitution itself. And if you want to raise children that are able to be good guardians of the republic that they're part of, teach them the Constitution. It does, if, if you actually understand the Constitution, what you think becomes less relevant than the way things are and the way things are supposed to be and the means by which you affect change if you wish to do so. It's pretty simple, really. It's like our founders actually knew what they were doing. Anyway, maybe a little longer than I planned on. With that, I want to go ahead and wrap up today. I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support the Survival Podcast is to uh, support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll see all the stuff that I recommend there. Today I'm recommending something for you that I've recommended many times. Thousands of tubs of this stuff have sold, sold uh, through our affiliate link. It is amazing. It is uh, Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment, and its primary ingredient that makes it work is comfrey. There's a lot of other stuff in it. Um, I have heard just tons of people write in, shoulder problems, knee problems, back problems, aches, pains, scrapes, you name it, and have used this stuff with positive results. I won't say any more because the Department of Making Me Sad will come after me for prescribing medicine or something stupid like that. Uh, this is a great way to deal with aches, pains, deep tissue injuries, etc. has all the power of comfrey. Check it out. You can read my review on it. Again, it's called Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. Item of the day at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. Remember, everything at tspaz I have personally used, I've spent my own money on, or I wouldn't recommend it for you. And everything I've reviewed is there in alphabetical groupings by category. So you can see every review I've ever done at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is really a great song for a Friday. 
uh, especially I guess a, a spooky Friday, like Friday the Thirteenth, because it's an uplifting, very beautiful song. It's called "Arms Open" by the Script, and um, this song is really about the fact that people are wounded in the world, and you can't go back and make it go away, but you can be there for them. I mean, that's the best way that. I can put it. And it, it, the video for it that I'm about to play for you, generally I kind of fade the song in. I'll, I'll play this whole video, including kind of the dialogue at the beginning of it. But when they, when they put this video together, they, the script teamed up with A Sense of Home. They're a nonprofit organization that helps provide homes to young people who have aged out of the foster care system. The clip showcases uh, stories of some of the kids who've been helped out by the outfit. Um, This is something Dorothy and I have actually talked a lot about, trying to do something for these exact people. Because you have people that, for one reason or another, they lose their parents, whether it's because their parents suck, their parents pass away, uh, their parents are drug addicts, their parents go to prison, you know, all these American kids that are separated from their parents. And they go into this foster system, and odds are if they're over a certain age, they don't get adopted. No one ever takes them in as their own permanently. Uh, if they have certain problems, that's even less likely that it's going to happen. And so they, and a lot of times they go from home to home, from, from group to group, and they never have a place that's really theirs. And then one day they get old enough that they're an adult in the eyes of the state, and they're basically told, okay, go. And when you don't have any real support to lean back to, when you don't have a mom or a dad, When you don't have, any, I mean, you think about it, something that ends up in the foster system, generally that means they don't even have, like, a solid enough uncle or an aunt or something like that that says, hey, you can come stay with me. And, and now they're supposed to see to their life. And, and this, this, this song has some very moving components to it, again, at the beginning and the end, where you hear actual people that have been helped by this organization. But it's so much bigger than that. And when you read, and I'll, I'll link to the song facts on the city, too, where you could read, like, where the idea from the song came from. It's it's not like they... Sometimes these songs are done for a non-profit. Like, okay, we're going to help these people by doing this song. This was a song that they did, and then they said, hey, it kind of fits this these people really well. This is really about being there for people, period. And you hear this one lady at the end of this song, and you hear her tearfully say how amazing this is. And I've been in this by myself forever, something to that effect. And there's so many times it doesn't even have to be giving somebody a house. Sometimes people just need to know that somebody cares, that somebody somewhere gives a shit. And that one bit of knowledge is all they need to take the first step and then the second step, and pretty soon they're building a pretty amazing life. I feel this way about kids being bullied and over 5,000 young people a year in the United States taking their own lives between the ages of 10 and 24 years of age, uh, 4,800 to 5,400 children a year over the last 10 years, it varies back and forth, have taken their own lives. And I believe that the vast majority of them are victims of the social system we've created in public education. And that a lot of them, if they had felt at one point, at one moment, that somebody cared about them, they may not have made that fatal choice. And it is important for us in our lives to realize that there's only so many people that can be there for any given person. 
and at times the opportunity to do so may come to us. And when that happens, you can only do so much for certain people. I understand there's certain people that, like, they're self-destructive and you can only do so much for them. But when the opportunity to do something comes, we should see it not as a burden, but we should see it as a duty and a positive obligation. Think about that through this weekend. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I grew up in a very violent home and um, from which I was taken out at 14 and then put into the system. My mother was unable to keep me because she was doing, she was on drugs when I was born. When I turned maybe about 15, my dad passed away. I remember when the social worker to go pick me up from my house she was just kind of like oh you have to pack something for you and your daughter and then they took me to like this home and they let my daughter stay there the first night with me and then the next night they were like oh if we can't find a house that is willing to take you and your daughter you guys might have to go into different homes nobody else wants you you have nowhere else to go so they just put me in a foster home I can't unfeel your pain, I can't undo what's done, I can't send back the rain, but if I could, I would, my love, my arms are open.